All right, take your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Maybe you just left your uh, bookmark in there this morning, but Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to be this evening. I want to just give you a word of encouragement. Uh, I thank the Lord for the three that chose to accept Christ as their Savior this morning. And uh, there ought not be a Christian in this room and remember this church that goes to bed without thanking the Lord for that. You know, the best way to shut off God's blessing in our church is not to thank Him for it. And so make sure that when we see tremendous victories in our church, that we don't just accept them as commonplace. Because what happened this morning was not commonplace. And I praise God that He just allowed us to be a part of something like that. Romans chapter 10, verse number 1. You may have heard this passage of Scripture before. I'm not exactly sure. But Romans chapter 10, verse number 1. The Bible says, Brethren, my heart's desire... And prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you bless now in the few uh, moments that we have here together. Lord, I pray that this message would touch many hearts in the room as it's already touched mine. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, growing up in church, I've heard thousands and thousands of sermons. And even if you were to narrow it down of just mission sermons, I've heard Hundreds and hundreds of mission sermons. And oftentimes, throughout a preacher's sermon, I would hear something that, that they would say that kind of sounded like this. You are a missionary where you are. And you know, you got to have a little rasp in there. It's not preaching, right? You are a missionary where you are. <laughs> Patch the Pirate was the one speaking to us, actually. No, no, I'm kidding. But in full disclosure, while I accepted the basis of that statement, while I was called to fulfill the Great Commission like everybody else, I, I, I truly did not feel qualified to be a missionary. Now what these people do is spectacular. Think about it. They're leaving every comfort that they've ever known, They're leaving the greatest nation on the face of the earth many times to go to governments that are so screwed up you can't even find food to eat. And this is the type of faith that these people demonstrate. I mean, we have a guy who loves eating crawfish going up to Toronto where all they know about is hitting home runs off of poor little pitchers and throwing their bat halfway through the ceiling. Amen. I think Jose Bautista needs to be saved. Amen. (laughs) Truth is, I did not feel qualified to be included in the type of faith uh, that these people had. So I, I, I looked up kind of what the definition of a missionary is to kind of bail myself out. You know what I mean? To kind of give me an excuse. So how do you do that? You go to the old dictionaries where words still had pure meaning. 
And I went to Noah Webster's 1824 uh, uh, dictionary. I actually had to reinforce my desk before I put it on it. So that's how old this thing is. And this is the definition of a missionary. And I was expecting a total bailout. I was trying to cop out. And this is the definition. One cent to propagate religion. Well, thanks, Noah. That didn't bail me out at all. So when, I, when, I, when I, I didn't find my answer or my bell out in the old dictionary, what did I do? I, I went to a modern dictionary, you know, one that kind of waters down what the words should have meant. And, and over time, they've taken on new meanings. And so I was thinking that maybe my mindset of what a missionary is would be, be more equally uh, uh, closely uh, defined by a modern definition. So as of 35 minutes ago, dictionary.com... Which you can't get more modern than that, honestly. Dictionary.com's uh, definition of a missionary is a person sent by a church into an area to carry on evangelism or other activities. Thanks, Dictionary.com. That didn't bail me out either. You see, truth is, I am sent to propagate my religion where I am at. More specifically, I don't care to propagate my religion. I care to propagate the message of Jesus Christ. So I'm sent to do that. Now, a missionary has never been confined to one area or another. In fact, our very modern definition of missionary is that you just be sent to any area at all, anywhere. So, I'm a missionary. And guess what? You're a missionary. And you can't bail yourself out. You can't cop out because Jesus' own words were that we would go into all the world and preach the gospel. And last time I checked, even Cleburne is the world. So if we're a missionary, if I'm a missionary and you're a missionary, I, I truthfully have not to this point felt qualified, but I find myself thrown into this missionary category. So I want to be a good missionary. The Bible says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And I believe that if you're not trying, you're dying. And so if I'm going to try something, I'm going to try getting good at it. I'm going to try being my best at it. So I want to take a look at the making of a, mur not murderer, a missionary. <laughs> a missionary. Verse number one, I want to share with you three attributes of a missionary. First of all, verse number one, we are to be responsive. The Bible says, brethren, my heart's desire. You know, our day and age, our churches could better be labeled or named Church of the Living Dead. You go into most churches and nothing moves the members of those churches. Oh, there's nothing to get excited about. Even the preaching's watered down. There's no excitement. There's no thrill. Uh, it, it's just total um, monotony and lame the entire time you're there. In fact, my, the w first insult my daughter's learned is lame goober. And she's calling Amy, my wife, a lame goober. And I'm trying to correct her, but it's just so cute. It's hard. hard. She says, you're a lame goober. And boy, that's really cute. But you go into most churches, and I tell you, it's just hard to get involved. It's hard to get excited because nobody there is acting like they're excited at all. For instance, 
If you can't get excited about what took place this morning at Joshua Baptist Church, you need to check your pulse. You may be the start of the zombie apocalypse if you uh, did not get excited this morning. Think about all that went on. Now, you don't know the full story. Those folks who came and got saved are from Saginaw. They drove from Saginaw. I know the, the man who got saved this morning. His name is Kyle. When I was about 14 years old, I was invited on a goose hunt with Willie Caldwell, and by faith I stepped out and went with him. Amen? <laughs> Willie Caldwell just randomly out of the blue invited me to a goose hunt. Kyle was on that goose hunt. Kyle and his sister and his girlfriend have been saying for weeks they wanted to come to church. They said, yeah, we need to go to church this week. But they, each week something would come up. You know, they go to step out the door and something would just get in their way or they were stepping out the door a little too late. And it just so happens that this was the week they chose that no matter what happened, they were going to church. Amen. Then they come to church and probably the strangest thing that's happened in our church in years takes place. In the middle of the sermon, we just tag team the thing. And preachers just like, Andrew, Go. Now here's where it gets interesting. I've been preaching every Sunday night for about two and a half years. Not one time has our text ever conflicted. Not once. Not one time have I ever seen Dad even remotely preach the same sermon I'm going to preach. And this morning he says, Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of verses there. And he starts reading, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And I look at him and I go, Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> all that work, all that labor. Man, I tell you, he's just going to preach my message. I bet he went into my office while I was teaching Sunday school and stole my outline. And I was thinking, man, and to be, be very honest. Now, I'm not supposed to say this, and I'm not supposed to be this way. I was a little upset. <laughs> not that he doesn't have every right to preach any passage in the entire Bible that he wants to, but the fact, I was already thinking, I kind of got in my flesh a little bit. I was already thinking, now I'm going to have to go home. Hey, I'm being honest. Now I'm going to have to go home. And studying a passage is not what's burdensome at all. I love studying the Bible. It's the greatest thing that you could ever do is study God's Word. And so I was interested in studying a passage. The most difficult thing for a preacher is finding what to study. And now I'm thinking, well, I only have a short amount of time. You know, there's a deadline this evening. At 6.30, this thing kicks off whether or not I'm ready. I've got to eat some type of lunch. I mean, I may only have four hours to not only figure out what I'm going to preach, but then to begin to study what I'm going to preach and have a fully developed sermon and be totally spirit-filled and ready to preach this evening. Amen? And I thought, there is no way. And sitting back there, I got in the flesh and I just started paying attention. Then he read past chapter, verse number 4 and I said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. He's not going to stay in the first four verses. And then some teenagers started acting up there in the youth section. My wife said, hey, Andrew, go up there and, you know, do your job. 
She's such a lame goober. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm sitting there and I'm, I've got one eye on the girl and the boy behind me. I've got one eye on the kids around me. I'm trying to figure out how to get comfortable. My suit jacket's fitting all weird. I'm trying to pay attention and out of nowhere, Dad just goes, <coughs> Andrew, come on. And I'm like, what? You don't think that there may have been some divine intervention there? I mean, I wasn't ready to preach. And I'm not saying that what I did took skill or anything like that. I'm just saying God moved in our presence this morning. And despite all the many times that we as a church sit down and we schedule our services out, and we prepare our specials, and we get so sanctified and dignified that we couldn't even be electrified, even if we wanted to be. We just sit here, and then the one time that God really shows up is the time that we look the craziest, most disorganized of all. If you can't get excited about there's there's a problem. Paul was... I would give you that he was the second missionary in the Bible. I would maybe agree with you if you said the third. I, I believe Jesus probably would be qualified as a missionary sent to somewhere to evangelize, to propagate religion. I think you could go there. If you wanted to, you could say John the Baptist was a, a missionary. He was sent to an area. And so Paul is really about the third missionary in the Bible. And he is, by true definition, a missionary with the gospel. And he's called to a, a huge, diverse people. Kind of like Brother A. Barrett and I. He's, he was going, he's going to Toronto because of the uh, crazy amount of diversity there. But truly, Paul loved Israel, but he had a heart for the Gentile as well. Peter had a speed bump when it came to the Gentile. But Paul wanted, he said, if the Jews aren't going to listen to the message, I'll go to the Gentile. And so he had a heart for missions. Amen. He was sensitive. He was willing to see people's problems, willing to see through their issues and love them anyway because God loved them. He was, first of all, passionate. He was passionate. Why are not more local churches passionate about seeing people saved? No, I'm not saying why don't more churches want to see people saved. I believe that every church that's somewhat halfway right with God wants to see people saved. Why are not more churches passionate about it? Why is it not their lifeblood? Why is it not their heartbeat? Why is it not the driving force before any event is planned, before anything is organized? Why is not missionary outreach to our community the first thing people think about? The Bible makes very clear in Psalm chapter 126, He that goeth forth and weepeth, Bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. You say, Brother Andrew, I've heard many preachers say that verse, and I'm just not the crying kind. Okay, say you're not the crying kind. Are you the rejoicing kind? Are you the person that sees somebody saved or sees somebody in a lost condition and doesn't just give up on them? Are you a person who's sensitive and ready and responsive to the needs of our community? He was passionate. I asked myself this afternoon, how can I become a passionate soul winner? How can I be that? Because I believe that's an honoring attribute in a Christian's life. 
And this is the conclusion I came to. Many times while I'm driving, I'll be in conversation with my wife, but my dad has taught me, and it's just something he passed down to me, you're always looking for wildlife. Not because you're going to hit them with your car, just to watch for wildlife, because it's really fun to see wildlife. And so while we're driving down the road, we'll be looking for deer, we'll be looking for turkey, we'll be looking for cats or whatever, but we just like looking for wildlife. But what I've found is when I finally spot wildlife, I'm not the best driver after this. I am not already a great driver. I'm pretty, I weave quite a bit. But then when I find wildlife, this is the truth, as opposed to everything else I've previously said in my sermon. My Bible teacher, Dr. Getch, if he heard me say that, he'd be so angry at me. He said, don't say this is the truth. Everything you say ought to be the truth. But it's not. No, no, I'm just kidding. But I've found that when I look and find something worth looking at away from my course, that naturally my vehicle tends to drift the direction of that object. And you laugh, but truth is... Truth is, where does that come from? You laugh, but I have honest... I'm not sure honestly is much better... (laughs) I'm falling apart at the seams. Maybe God will do something tonight too. But every time that I'm looking at the road and I finally spot something worth looking at, maybe it's a deer, maybe it's whatever, my wife, I'll I'll start hitting what we call the alarm clock on the road, you know, where your tires hit the little warning track there and and then I have to correct. So how do I become a passionate soul winner? I stop looking at things that might sidetrack me. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When you look at Jesus and when Jesus Christ is the, the focus of your life, then every priority that Jesus has will become your priority. It will become your heartbeat. When Jesus asks you to do something, it will be the utmost honor that you have and it will be the very core of your pleasure to say, why yes, Jesus, you are lovely and I will be glad to serve you. That's how we become passionate. That's how we become a passionate soul winner. Not only do we need to be passionate, we must be persistent. Now, don't just read the Bible and overlook some tremendous nuggets. The Bible says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for who? Israel. Paul is specifically speaking of the Jews here. And that would be like you and I saying, I want America to be saved, and I do want America to be saved. But it goes a little deeper than that, because while wanting his nation to be saved is a tremendous attribute that he might have, the problem is, the Jews have not been kind to Paul since he's been a convert. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and, listen, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city supposing he had been dead. So the Jews take Paul and stone him nearly to death. The Bible goes on to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, as Paul lists out several struggles he's encountered in ministry, the Bible says, of the Jews, only the Jews, this is not the Gentiles doing this, of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes saved one. 
Thrice was I beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. So who was it that was doing this to Paul? Everybody, everybody help me out. Who was it? The Jews. It was Israel. And yet Paul looked beyond the, the inconveniences against their opposition to the gospel, and he said, that doesn't mean they can't be saved. That doesn't mean they don't deserve to be saved. Just because they're hostile towards me. Look, I was once hostile towards me too. If you remember, it was not so long ago when he was the one persecuting the church. And now the Bible says that his heart's desire is that he would see all the Jews come to know him. It is a shame how often churches turn back to sinners as if it's too late for them. As if they're too far gone and there's no way that the gospel could ever reach them. But the Bible tells us that the power of the gospel is foolishness unto those that don't believe, but unto us who know God, it is the power of the gospel. You realize that while sometimes circumstances look overwhelming and insurmountable, the truth, man, I need to get away from saying that truth is thing. But the Bible tells us that uh, uh, when we will go with the gospel and in God's power, we will have His blessing and we can persistently reach out to those who may not be easy to reach out to. I had a conversation with a lady this morning after church who was concerned about her Sunday school class who were looking at things on the internet and seeing things that they should not see. And she was worried that these things might sidetrack them or deter them from being the Christians that they ought to be. Our world has so overwhelmed us with wickedness that sometimes it seems like the gospel will never, ever, ever prevail. But the gospel is powerful enough to break any chains. It's powerful enough to do anything that's amazing. A while back, I was reading a, a story of a missionary's life. This missionary was Jim Elliott. He went to Ecuador to the people that are now known as the Wadani tribe. He was called, and uh, uh, the problem with this was, though, that these people had always been hostile towards anybody that came into their village. They had killed local natives, and they had killed also oil well workers that were there. So nobody was ever able to reach these people, but Jim Elliot had a burden for them. I was reading as Jim Elliot began to plan how he would reach out to these people, and the first plan that they came up with was that they would just lower a bucket down on a plane full of supplies and full of uh, things to encourage them that the, the folks in the plane were friendly. And in fact, as they flew over the Wadani tribe there, they would save the very limited phrases that they could as friendly greetings to them. A while after this proceeded, the Wadani tribe actually began to put things in the basket almost to symbolize a peaceful relationship between the two. At this point, the plan seemed to be progressing in a very good way, so they planned to land the plane a few miles downriver on a beach, and they were going to build a treehouse there, and they would stay in that treehouse uh, and try to communicate with the people. They did this, and the first contact they had was with one man and two women at the uh, beach there. They were excited and thrilled, and the, the people seemed to reciprocate the feeling. In fact, Jim Elliot actually took that man, the Wadani man, 
up into his plane and flew him around. It seemed like everything was progressing great. And then uh, uh, they said, you go bring more people next time. They were waiting a day, two days, three days, and they still had not seen another tribesman come. Now, mind you, they had always been a threat. They had always been violent and hostile. But Jim Elliot seemed to be progressing in a way that nobody had ever progressed before. Day six, they look up the beach a ways and there's two women come out of the woods. They see these women and it seems a little odd because they're not approaching them and as they approach the ladies, they don't look friendly. It's at this point when they hear something behind them and behind them is a group of men with spears in hand coming to attack Jim Elliot and four other missionaries. Jim Elliot died with a pistol on his side. Never firing a bullet, never uh, going on the offensive, because in his heart, he was persistent with the Gospel, and he said, I'm not going to kill these men, but they will have to hear the Gospel from someone else. Fast forward just two years later, his wife Elizabeth Elliot is living in the village next to these people. People are getting saved, and now they're a peaceful tribe. Look, it was a man who would not give up. It was a man who never said they're too far gone. There's just too much sin in their life. It's just too far. It was a man who was persistent and said, I'm going to love them no matter what they do to me, no matter how many times they hurt me. I'm still going to love them because Jesus loved them. Jesus laid His hands down on the cross and then He took nails and they... Uh, put His hands on that cross, and they lifted Him up. And Jesus looked at the group of people that were killing Him that day, and He said, Father, forgive them. He never gave up on us. we got to be careful that we don't give up on those around us. We must be responsive. Secondly, we must be reasonable. Look at verse number 3. Verse number 3 of Romans chapter 10. The Bible says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now the farther this world drifts away, it seems like there's less hope that anybody's going to come to Christ. It seems like the the wickedness of the world and the darkness is increasingly growing as the light of the Gospel is shrinking in nature. But I want to draw your attention to three words that cannot allow us to lose hope. First of all, in verse number 3, I want to draw your attention to the word ignorant. The Bible says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Here's what it seems that our opinion becomes is, everybody is directly opposed to the gospel message. It seems like that's what all the media outlets are saying. It seems like all the things that we hear from even our own pulpits are that everybody hates the Gospel, and we're enemies of this world, and they're enemies of us, and so we draw our lines in the sand, almost as if to say, we're never going to reach anybody else. But the Bible tells us here, not everybody is just in direct opposition to the Gospel. Some people just don't know about the Gospel. Some people don't have the full understanding of what it means to be saved. You go ask somebody at their door if they know what it means to be saved, they'll say, uh, because uh, uh, they don't. And the definition of saved to some people is so crazy. 
I asked one lady one day if she was a Christian. She said, oh, absolutely. And I said, do you believe in the Trinity? She said, absolutely not. And I said, well, it's kind of difficult to be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity. See, people don't know what they believe. And the Bible tells us here that some people are just ignorant when it comes to the Gospel. Think about Saul before he was converted. He was zealously doing what he thought was right. It wasn't that he hated the church. It was that he loved the God that he knew. But the God that he knew was not the God that uh, I served, nor the God that he went on to serve. He was ignorant. And we got to be careful that we don't just throw everybody into a category. I hate the fact that we are so down that homosexuals will never come to the gospel. I hate the fact that we're so down that uh, uh, pro-abortion people are just too far gone. That's a problem. Nobody's too far gone for the arm of the gospel to reach. And we have to understand, some people may just be ignorant. Secondly, we have to see here a word. They're ignorant of, the God, of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Now the Bible's telling us here that what they're doing, they get in a, 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 a pattern of living and they establish themselves in that lifestyle. In other words... They get so grounded in what they believe that it's going to be difficult for them to hear any other message. You think Brother James going to Japan to a group of people who have never heard the Gospel, who have never even heard the name Jesus Christ, do you think that he's so so foolish that he's just going to go stand on a uh, a street corner, preach the Gospel and hand out tracts, and next week he'll have a church of 300? No, he understands there will be opposition. He understands that when people have been taught from the time that they're knee-eye to a grasshopper that there is no Jesus, he's going to have a pretty tough road to hoe. I'm reminded of the Philippian jailer who said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, I've never been asked that question. I would love to be asked that question. I would love to just, oh yeah, let me take the Bible and show you. But most cases are much harder fought. You think of uh, uh, the rich young ruler as he came to Jesus and Jesus preached to this young man and he did not get saved. You think of King Agrippa as Paul with one of his most passionate pleas preached the Gospel and he did not get saved. This world is established in the rudiments and the ways of this world. Don't think that it's always going to be easy to see people saved. He says they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're going about to establish their own righteousness. Look at the fourth words. And have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know what it means to be unsaved? It means to be unwilling to submit to God's plan of salvation. Whether ignorantly or not, someone who is unsaved has not accepted the only means of salvation that there is. And I want to take this time to show you something that I I just recently learned. Take your Bible to John chapter 3. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation uh, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Now I believe Paul believed in the power of the gospel. But did you know that every conversion does not happen overnight? Some people are so established in their ways and so 
having such a difficult time submitting to God's plan that sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. Look in John chapter 3, verse number 1. Now, I want to make very clear to you, this is probably the best sermon preached in the entire Bible. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, who is it? Nicodemus. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. As the passage progresses, we know what John chapter 3, verse 16 says, but Jesus preaches here to Nicodemus. And we have no record of Nicodemus' salvation. Now take your Bible to John chapter 7. As I mentioned, some people are so established in their ways that they have difficulty submitting to God's plan of salvation. John chapter 7, verse 45. The Bible says, John chapter 7, verse 45, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? Speaking of Jesus. The officer said, Never man spake like this. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of, or, uh, or of the Pharisees believed on him? In other words, they're saying, has anybody with any intellect believed on him yet? Look at verse 49. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. So they're saying, it's only the uneducated, it's only the unrefined that are believing on this Jesus character. None of the Pharisees, none of the leaders have actually believed on him. And y'all should take note of that. But there's a man there. And I want you to see this. Verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Now, he is in probably the most toxic environment ever opposed to Jesus. And in verse 51, he says, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. In other words, uh, uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, right? We can all agree to that. John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus speaks the gospel unto him. Now, John chapter 7, Nicodemus looks up in the face of a bunch of people questioning and in direct opposition to Jesus, and they say, has any one of the rulers uh, believed? Just look at that. And Nicodemus says, well, I mean, it's at least worth hearing him out. I mean, it's at least worth, even our law, we don't just judge a matter if we don't hear it. Now take your Bibles to John chapter 19. Nicodemus, although is, I don't believe, at this point saved. John chapter 3, he is not, there's no testimony of salvation. John chapter 7, he's not vehemently defending Jesus. He's just kind of speaking up saying, well, it's at least worth hearing him out. Now John chapter 19, verse number 38. The Bible says, 
And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, he was scared because he didn't want to be uh, uh, hurt by the Jews. They, they were very opposed to the message of Christ here. So he was kind of a secret disciple. Now look in verse number 39. And there came also, who's that that's there? Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Now he's bringing uh, a gifts to the Lord, and I think that's something worth noting. Verse 40, Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now something happens here. Nicodemus is what? He's a Pharisee. Nicodemus knows the Old Testament law, right? Yes. What time was Jesus crucified? The Passover. To take the Passover, a Jew must have been purified. He could not be uh, 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 unclean as the law would label it. And the Bible tells us in Numbers not, chapter number 19, verse 11, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. So in other words, now stay with me, I know this is getting kind of deep, but Nicodemus could not legally touch a dead body and still take the Passover of the Old Testament. So why would a Pharisee commit himself to bring something to Jesus, neglect everything that he's already learned, and become unclean the one time a year that he's able to take the Passover? Because he realized that the old Passover had been done away with and the new Passover had been established. Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb for the sins of all mankind. But you understand from John chapter 3 to John chapter 19, this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't an immediate thing. Some of you have relatives, you say, Brother Andrew, I've prayed for them for years and years and years, and they just never come to church. They never, never ever show any type of interest in the gospel. Tonight, tonight, my aunt on Amy's side is sitting in church, and she's not been in church for years. I don't know why. Maybe something to do with God doing something in their family and health issues. But tonight, her aunt is sitting in church. She hasn't been open to the gospel for years. She hasn't wanted to go to church for years. And yet tonight, just so happens, God's opened her heart to go to church. Don't give up. Amen. Don't give up. Keep preaching. Keep being the person you know you ought to be. Don't ever think that it's too far gone or that anybody's just out of reach for the gospel because nobody's out of reach for the gospel. They're ignorant. They're established. And they've not submitted to the way of righteousness. But that doesn't mean it's too late. So, we've learned we have to be responsive. We have to be reasonable. Finally, look at this. We must be ready. We must be ready. Every missionary is affected for the field that they're going for. I shared last week, I love spending time with missionaries. Because as far as that missionary is concerned, that's the only mission field in the world. That's the one they love. And, and, and they're even, I, I'm sure in their heart, they watch other missionary videos and they're critical like, well, you ought to go to my mission field because my mission field is way better than your mission field. Like cheering for a home team, right? They think, man, this is my mission field. They love their mission field. And they're responsive to their mission field. They also understand that nothing that they're going to do is going to happen overnight. They're going to have to go and be faithful and pray for people and love people and disciple people and grow people. And that's the way the gospel works. 
But every missionary that we send out of this church must be ready. Be ready to do what? Well, first of all, be ready to possess an answer. Be ready to have an answer. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, know what you believe and share what you believe when the time is right. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me ask you this tonight. Do you feel qualified to lead somebody to the Lord? The question is not whether you're qualified. The question is whether you're capable. If you know Christ, you're qualified, but do you feel able to lead someone to the Lord? It ought to be your burning desire to be ready when the time comes. You ought to be the person that's springing up to lead somebody to the Lord. When somebody raises their their hand in church, you ought to be the person that even though the preacher begs you not to open your eyes and see, you ought to be the person who just looks so you can go and tackle them before anybody else gets to them because you're ready to share the hope that lieth within you. You've got to be ready. Church, and if you feel like you're ready to answer someone uh, when it comes to the gospel's sake, okay, are you ready to counsel someone? Oh, I'm not talking about counsel from your own experience. I'm not talking about counsel out of your own mindset or your own agendas. I'm talking about showing someone from the Word of God and having an answer when the time is right. An answer to encourage someone then they lose a relative. An answer to help somebody keep on keeping on when the going gets tough. That is the type of missionary we need. Someone who's ready to have an answer. And finally, ready to point them to Christ. I am amazed at how many times people take presenting the gospel upon themselves. I want you to see this. Take your Bibles back to Romans chapter 10, verse number 4. Presenting the gospel has and never will be about the presenter. That's where we get hung up though, isn't it? We say, well, I don't know if I'm going I'm to stutter through it. I'm probably going to say something that's not right. I, I don't know if I'm capable. I just, I'll probably forget all the references. I don't even know what I would do. It's best if you have the, uh, you know, a chain written out in your Bible. Just put them there in the columns. Just tell where the next verse is. You say, I, just, I would probably just not even do a good job. And it's amazing how we can take something that's never been about us. It's between somebody else and the Lord. And yet we, we act like the burden's on us. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. What is Paul's heart for the mission field? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You need to know what you... You want to know what you need to know to lead somebody to the Lord? Know that they're not good enough to get there on their own, but there was somebody who took care of it for them. That's really all you have to share. You don't have to make it about yourself. You ever been in conversation and somebody come up and act, act as if they redirect the conversation to them no matter what you're talking about? It's like you have a car, well, they have a better car. It's like you caught a fish and they caught a bigger fish. It's like your wife is ugly and their wife is... No, no, I'm just kidding. They always have a better story and they make everything about them. So often we're guilty of making the gospel about us. 
I remember being so afraid to open up my Bible and share the gospel with somebody. But I was looking at my own insecurities. I was looking at my own limitations when it came to my knowledge or my experience. And I made someone else's salvation experience about me. What a trick of the devil. If you tonight have been saved, you have your testimony, which is the best tool you can have. You have your personal experience. All you need to know, if you have your testimony in a tract, the devil is afraid of you. Oh, we're missionaries. We're missionaries. And we're missionaries sent to our area. As I said this morning, you have a group of people that you can touch with the gospel that nobody can touch. I think of somebody, and I don't want to start calling names, but I think of somebody like Miss Ashley Klein. Miss Ashley. She gets a chair, and they're stuck in that chair. It doesn't matter what she says. She's a, oh, not a barber, a beautician, a stylist, we'll call it that, not a barber, much more uppity than a barber, Miss Ashley. And Miss Ashley has this chair, and she can go as high as she wants. She can go as low as she wants. And I'm already thinking, do you want to go to heaven? Or hell. What a, what a brilliant way to present the gospel. And it does not matter what you do. I'm thinking if you're a contractor today and you have one of those nail guns that shoot at a distance, you say, if you died right now, are you sure you go to heaven? What a brilliant way to enter the planet. I'm holding a nail gun pointed at the person's face. Look. We make it all about us, and it's not about us at all. We're missionaries. We may not be great missionaries. We're just trying to be good missionaries. And over time, we say, well, we just haven't seen a lot of progress. Keep praying. Keep working. You don't think Paul was a little discouraged when the Jews ran him out of town, imprisoned him, and beat him? You don't think he was a little discouraged? And yet, his prayer and his heart's desire has never changed. It's never wavered. He wanted them to be saved. Find somebody to love. Find somebody to begin working on and praying for and uh, contributing every bit of your being to see that person's salvation. It may be your mother. It may be your father. I know I'm praying for my mother. It may be a relative, it, it may be a co-worker, but find somebody. We can change this world one person at a time, just don't give up. If you're going to make a missionary, the missionary has to be responsive. They have to be reasonable, and they have to be ready to give an answer when the time comes.